Hey everyone, welcome to Resilience Unraveled. This podcast is the result of my fascination with subjects like resilience, accountability, burnout, life fulfillment and other life and work-based performance issues, as well as many of the other obsessions I bump into in my life. I spend my time working with highly successful teams, people and organisations, and this podcast introduces their remarkable stories and expertise, as well as my own synthesis of the key issues, strategies, tips, tools and resources to thrive in life. If you find this podcast useful, why not go over to our site qedod.com. If you'd like some resources on how to manage and beat burnout, head to qedod.com forward slash burnout 2019 for some goodies. Stay tuned to the end to find out details of how to order a free ebook. Enjoy the podcast. So today I'm talking to Frank King, and um, we've had people on like um, Frank before. I should say who've covered subjects similar to Frank's, but not not in the way that Frank's going to do it. So I'm really looking forward to a very very fascinating conversation. Um, Things that are important, but obviously we can discuss in a way that um, is respectful to people who have experienced these things, but also people who really need to understand that there are other people in the world out there who um, are going to be part of our subject area. So Frank, hi there. Good morning, Russell Thackeray. And good afternoon or evening, Frank King, because I'm sitting in the, in, the, um, in the environs of Wembley Stadium. Just around the corner from England football team's greatest triumph. And you're in where? I'm in, uh, I'm in Portland, Oregon. I live in Eugene, but I'm in Portland. I just got back from Minneapolis. I was there for uh, a sort of a speaker marketing boot camp. Uh, and this evening I've got a meeting of the NSA. I don't know. It's National Speakers Association. Uh, yeah. Well, Oregon chapter. There's a chapter pretty much in every state. And uh, then I head back home to, tonight to Eugene, Oregon. We were just comparing our hotel rooms earlier, so we just yeah. we were sort of we were sort of uh, extolling the benefits of what this wonderful life we have on the road seeking consulting. <laughs> it's and so romantic. It all is, and the, um, the the fantastic meals and the uh, the glamour, <laughs> the glitz and the glamour. Yeah, you know, I, I tell people, Russell, that I'm not really a speaker or a comedian. I am a professional traveler who just happens to talk. Yeah. You get paid for traveling, really, don't you? Yeah, you? I tell the uh, cruise, cruise audience, look, uh, yeah. you're not paying me for these jokes. You paid me to get here. Yeah, that's right. You paid me to get on this ship and eat this food. Yep. So, Frank, so tell me why you're here. Because, I, I mean, I've, I've seen your, all your stuff. But, I mean, how, tell me about yourself and your journey and how you, how you describe what you do. Well, I started um, comedy in 1984 on April Fool's Day at the Comedy Store in La Jolla, a suburb of San Diego. Did five minutes of what they call here, open mic night. And about halfway through the five minutes, I thought to myself, I'm home. I'm going to do this for a living. I have no idea how, but I'm going to do it for a living. Um, and that was a April 84, December 85, the day after Christmas. My, my girlfriend, then my wife now, and I went on the road. We gave up our home, put everything uh, into storage. We couldn't fit into our tiny little Dodge Colt and hit the road for 2,629 nights in a row, nonstop. What were, you, what, were yep. you doing, what were you doing before that? I sold insurance for uh, straight out of college. I was married before to my high school sweetheart. Oh. Being a comedian, I was functionally unemployable, so I went to work with her father's insurance company. Yeah. 
I hated insurance, although it's a great business. I, I my, my first wife was a lovely woman, but we had nothing in common. But you know what they say, opposites attract. She was pregnant, I wasn't. Yeah. Um, the, and it came to a point where I thought, you know, if I stay in the insurance business and married to this lovely woman, I'm going to kill myself. And then my next revelation was very powerful. Well, I could quit my job, divorce her, try comedy. If it works, great. If it doesn't, shoot, I can still kill myself. Yeah, what's going on? That's how I got started in comedy. Then I met my current wife. Uh, several years later, we went on the road for that seven-year odyssey. And then comedy clubs began to close. I got an offer to do radio. So I did a morning show, a uh, rock and roll morning show in my old hometown, triumphantly returned. Yay. It was the number one rock and roll morning show when I started. 18 months later, I had driven it all the way to number six. Right. So one of my proudest accomplishments. Yes. I'm... I was always very I like the way you take all the credit for that. I do, and they give me credit for it because um, the other guy got to stay. The the um, the comedy club circuit had faded, and I'd always had a very clean act. And so the place for clean comedy to make any money really is in the they call it the rubber chicken circuit over here. They you know after dinner, after lunch, being funny at a banquet. Yeah, did that till the recession. Um, lost everything in the recession when my bookings dropped off 80% overnight, uh, came close enough to dying by suicide that I can tell you what the barrel of my gun tastes like. Uh, spoiler alert for the listeners, I uh, didn't pull the trigger. Um, and I tell that story every keynote I give. And then a friend of mine that I was just talking to before I spoke to you came up to me at the keynote and said, how come you didn't pull the trigger? And I said, how come you sound so disappointed? Yeah, uh, and so at that point, meeting planner said to me, Frank, look, comedy's good. Clean comedy's great. But we can't pay you that kind of money for just jokes. We need some content, some takeaways. You need to teach our audience something. Yeah. I'd never, I mean, I had always wanted to do that, Russell, but I'd never, I never found anything I thought would make any difference to anybody in the way of teaching them something. Mm. And I got a book from Judy Carter. She wrote, famously wrote the comedy Bible. That was her first book about being a stand-up comic and how do you do it. And then she wrote a book called The Message of You, Turning Your Life into a Money-Making Speaking Career. Right. About halfway through that book, I thought, you know what? I do have something to teach, to say, because depression and suicide run in my family. My grandmother died by suicide. My mother found her. My great aunt died by suicide. My mother and I found her. I was four years old. I'll spare you the details, but it's in my first TED Talk. And I myself, as I mentioned, have come close enough to dying that I can tell you what the barrel of my gun tastes like. So now what I do is I travel the country on the public speaking circuit. Um, the official name of it is Suicide Prevention as a Workplace Health and Safety Issue. But the book that I decided uh, at this past weekend, a friend of mine who was doing the boot camp said, Frank, I'll tell you what the name of your book should be. It should be called Starting the Conversation on Suicide. Because, Russell, that's why people hire me. They want somebody to come in and start that conversation because it's such a difficult conversation to have. And it's one we need to have. Oh, Lord. Over here, 47,000 people uh, die by suicide in the U.S. every year. That's one every 11 minutes, which means by the time you and I get done, three more people in the U.S. will have died of suicide. Mm. So that, that's what I do now. I speak, and I, I focus on certain industries that have a higher rate. Uh, I focus on veterinarians, dentists, and they're like number five, six, or seven on the list of top 10 occupations. And then construction, which right. is the number one occupation at risk for depression, thoughts of suicide in the U.S. So I, 
they are the only three of the top 10 or 12 that are actually proactive in, in, in working to prevent it. The rest of them know the problem exists. They just haven't gotten to the point yet where they're trying to do something about it. Right. That's interesting. What about the, um, uh, it's not a surprise to me to see the, um, the dentists, because actually they're the, the, the I think it's the number one, number one profession for stress effect. Well, that, that's what kills dentists and veterinarians is not necessarily suicide, but it's stress exacerbated physical and mental illness, whether it's a heart attack, stroke, or depression, thoughts of suicide. So stress is the linchpin. What about all the sort of performing arts people, the, um, the singers and, because uh, female, female creatives like that have a higher rate than male although we lost two two comedians last month two guys i knew both died by suicide we i have i have a podcast with a young woman a pakistani muslim comedian yeah. and we call it the suicide prevention punchline as opposed to lifeline yeah. and we started it because of the high number of comics and other creatives who die by suicide so we interview comedians and other creative people as well as clinicians on the on the on the podcast interesting it's interesting isn't it um so so tell me about your thing because it's um there's no there's there's a real difference in the way that um suicide actually takes place for men and for women yes actually in the u.s uh, three times as many women attempt yes than men but men tend to complete because of the easy availability of guns yeah and it tends, to, it tends to be more of a thought, doesn't it, with men? It tends to be, hey, I'm going to commit suicide, then they're going to do it. Where there seems yeah. to be more premeditation with female suicide. Is that, is that um, an urban myth, or is that, are there any facts to back that up? No, that is true. Uh, women tend to use uh, medication, or um, you know, they um, a razor blade, they cut themselves, or they crawl into a car and run a hose into a, you know, the uh, exhaust pipe, whereas men... When I was gonna, when I was gonna die, die by suicide, um, when I had the gun in my mouth, it was a 38 caliber revolver, and it was loaded with what they call a federal hydroshock hollow points. So if you pull the trigger on that with it, it in your mouth, there's no coming back. Yeah. Uh, so, women, so what stopped you pulling the trigger then? Well, it's it's um, when people are suicidal, one of the three major elements of that thought process is a burdensomeness you feel like the world would be better off without you yeah people say suicide selfish no not really in the mind of the person who is going to do it they think it's unselfish because they think everybody would be better off yeah. so i had a million dollar life insurance policy and we had just lost everything my wife and i we worked for for 25 years i had a million dollar life insurance policy so she would be broken hearted but she would not be broke if i pulled the trigger but the catch is in the policy, there was a two-year suicide clause. If you killed yourself within two years, it paid nothing. If you waited two years in a day, it paid the million dollars. Yeah. So I called my insurance agent, and I switch chit-chatting away, and I sort of casually asked how long I'd had the policy, and he said, I'll check, and I can hear him on the computer checking. And he comes back, and he realized what I was asking. I really wasn't asking how long I had the policy. Yeah. I was asking for permission to kill myself. Yeah. So he said, you've had it 22 months, and don't do it. Really? Yes, and he said later, after when we talked months later, when my first TED Talk came out on YouTube, I called him back to let him know it was up. And he said, yeah, Frank, you know, I, I realized you were planning on suicide. He goes, I had no idea what to say. He said, so I uh, briefly, I prayed very quickly for the Lord to give me, you know, something to say. Yeah. And I hope, hoped it was 
right. And I said, well, it was. And it, and and I often tell my audiences, you know, it's not always what you say. It's just for goodness sake, say something. Yeah, it's the timing almost, isn't it? Yes, because eight out of 10 people, it turns out, are ambivalent. They want somebody to go, don't do it. Yeah. Two out of 10, you're not going to stop them. They're going to do it. But eight out of 10, and that's why people hire me to start the conversation. That's the good news. You know, you can make a difference. You can save a life. And you can do it oftentimes, eight out of 10 times, by just opening a conversation. So you said, so you said the, um, the first thing was uh, being a burden. Well, what were the other two things? Uh, the other two is social isolation. Oftentimes people will isolate, yeah. withdraw from social activities they used to find uh, great pleasure in. And the third one, let's see, is burdensomeness, social isolation. Oh, and the willingness to cross that barrier. We are born with a, an amazing drive to survive and stay alive, even as infants. But yeah. once you've made up your mind, you can cross that barrier, you know, the, regardless of what the pain or whatever that is involved, ending your life, then that's the third leg of the stool. So if you feel like you're a burden and you've isolated socially, you don't have the social connections and you've already decided you can do it. And I have an odd, somewhat rare condition called chronic suicidality, right. which means that for me and people like me, and there are quite a few people out there, the option of suicide is always on the menu as a solution for problems large and small. And I say in most of my TED Talks that that means that a couple of years ago, my car broke down. I had three thoughts, choices popped into my head unbidden. One was uh, get the car fixed. Two was buy a new car. Three was or I could just kill myself. Yeah. That's chronic suicidality. And most often after I speak, somebody comes up, sometimes more than one somebody, and they have those thoughts. They thought they were just some kind of freak. They didn't know it actually had a name or that anybody... They thought they were alone and the relief and you know is palpable when they realize that there are other people with the same thought process mm. which by the way russell i realized <laughs> at some point i um i am like george bailey in that movie it's a wonderful life right right you know the angel shows george bailey what other people's lives would be like if he had not been there yeah and I've been shown what other people's lives would be like if perhaps they had not heard me speak. Yeah, that's right. Maybe I've taken them just far enough off the path of suicide, they'll live in, you know, a normal lifespan. And my second thought was, so I can't kill myself now because I would take all those people with me. That's an interesting way of looking at it. So you've actually, you've actually created the opposite of social isolation because you sort of you've tapped into a virtual group of people. Yes, the people that I have yet to meet. I mean, if I kill myself this afternoon, um, I'm speaking again on the 17th of September in Denver and the 1st of October at a school in Flint, Michigan. And it's conceivable that if those folks did not hear me speak and there were people in the audience who were suffering with one mental illness or another and felt terribly alone and had no hope, then they might in their lives having never heard me speak and perhaps i can instill in them just that spark of hope because to keep them alive so so you're sitting there and and i know a number of people who have committed suicide and a couple of people that haven't and the question i always ask them is so what stopped you well in this case pulling the trigger or you know jumping off the chair or off the bridge so what, what and they always sort of talk about something going across their mind 
So what happened to you? Well, that's, I didn't pull the trigger because I did not, I refused to leave my wife, uh, not only brokenhearted, but broke. I had two months left. Oh, I see. Right. Yeah. And I, and ironically, and um, I have a psychiatrist friend who has had several people who have my condition tell him this. If it were not for my chronic suicidality, if I were not willing to do it, if things got really bad, I probably would have killed myself a long time ago. Yeah. So the fact that, that I had crossed that barrier, that I knew I could kill myself at two months in a day when the policy was in force, that allowed me to live that two months, to get through that two months. And by the time we got two months in a day and the policy was in force and my wife would have gotten a million dollars. Yeah. The bankruptcy gone through, the phone calls had stopped. You know, I'd kind of broken the surface of the depression, took a deep breath. So, uh, but I've had people tell me, you know, they, I've got a doctor friend who, she was applying to um, a job in a hospital. And in the application, they asked you, have you ever had any of these mental illnesses? Yes or no. And if you have, have you t ever taken these medications? And it appeared that that would be uh, career limiting. That they probably would not hire her if she checked yes and a medication. Mm. So she, she checked no and stopped her medication and found herself a couple months later standing on a bridge about to jump. Right. And heard her mother say, you've got to call your mama. Yeah. So she got down off the railing and called her mother. And that's why she's alive. I've had people say, you know, there's a young woman I know who's a dentist. And she is uh, standing on a stool in the garage with a noose around her neck. And she happened to have her cell phone on her. And a former patient called who needed something. And so she, she took the noose out from around her neck, got down off the stool and went to help the patient. So... Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's for everybody, it's a little different story. And unfortunately, you know, oftentimes people do not interrupt. And, and it's, it, it's almost like a, you get yourself into a train of thought and it almost needs something to, to distract you out of it. Yes. It's, and again, it's because eight out of 10 people are uh, ambivalent. Um, there's a famous fellow named Kevin Hines uh, who survived the jump off the Golden Gate Bridge. Right. God. And he said he let he he was living in San Francisco, did not know how to kill himself. So of course he Googled it and it said, How do you kill yourself in the Bay Area? And it said, You go to one of the bridges. And so he got on a bus and took off for one of the bridges. And he said to himself, If anybody, I mean anybody asks me how I'm doing, I will spill my guts, I will tell them to call the police, I am suicidal, I need to be hospitalized. Yeah. And nobody spoke to him on the bus. Yeah. Nobody spoke to him on the bridge until he was just about to crawl up on the rail and a woman touched him on the shoulder and he thought, oh, thank God. And when he turned around, it was a tourist and she said, would you take our picture? Oh my. So he took the picture. She thanked him. He waited until they walked away. He crawled up on the rail and he jumped. Right. He wanted someone to come along and say, you know, simply, are you Okay. So it's, it's kind of that, you know, see something, say something, just because as I tell my friends who ask, what do I say? You know, just say something, anything. Yes. Just and don't and way, I mean, we talk a lot about resilience here and, you know, the antidote, well, the opposite of resilience is, is committing suicide. But what you're actually telling me is that any, any suicide, any person, eight out of 10 suicides could be preventable by someone caring enough just to say something. Yes. 
And so, because there's no real sign to spot it. It's not like I, uh, when I was much, much younger, we had um, um, one of our colleagues um, disappear and they found him having committed suicide in a car park. And, yeah. and nobody knew. He was perfectly happy. He had a happy life. And he just sat in his car and for some reason committed suicide. But as you say, those that train of thought must have been somewhere in his head, but no one, I mean, it's very hard to say, do you have suicidal thoughts unless you suspect that to be the case? Well, and that's what I teach. Um, I teach the signs, symptoms, and solutions, signs and symptoms of thoughts of uh, depression, thoughts of suicide, because there are, there are, um, there are signs, both um, verbal and behavioral. So what should we look out for? Well, and by the way, 90% of people who are considering suicide or attempt uh, give clues in the one week, in the seven days leading up to the attempt. Right, okay. So um, for depression, there's a laundry list, but I'll give you, you know, some of the uh, more um, common ones. It's uh, letting your personal hygiene go. Right. Uh, can't eat, eat too much, can't sleep, sleep too much. Uh, has trouble getting started in the morning, but seems to rally in the afternoon. Yeah. Um, then there's a social isolation. If they isolate themselves, you know, they move or move out yes. uh, or distance themselves from their friends. The, um, what I teach next is what to say and what not to say, more importantly, what not to say. Don't say pull yourself up by your bootstraps, turn that frown upside down. Have you tried fish oil? Yeah. Um, what you do say to somebody you believe is depressed is... I'm here for you and mean it. I know that depression is not, you're not crazy, lazy, or self-absorbed. No. It's a mental illness. The good news is with time and treatment, things will get better. I will take the time and you got to mean it and I'll help you get the treatment and you got to mean it. And then you have to ask this question. This is a tough one. This, this one, Russell, I practice myself in the mirror before I ever ask anybody. I say to them, are you having thoughts of suicide? You have to ask. Right. Now, there's, a, there's an old wives tale that you should never mention the S word, suicide, in front of somebody who's depressed. And I love the reasoning as a comedian. I love the reasoning. It might give them the idea. Suicide, what a great idea. Why didn't I think of that? I thought that one, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's, passed, it's crossed my mind. Yeah. So, um, but let's say they don't admit they're suicidal or having thoughts of suicide. How do you know? What are you looking for? Well, if they are... Again, eat too much, can't eat, sleep too much, can't sleep. Of course, using drugs or alcohol to excess, not just to party, but to self-medicate. Yeah. They're gathering the means to die by suicide, whether it's buying a gun and ammunition or stockpiling medication. If they begin giving away prized possessions, right. because they want to make sure those possessions go to the people they want them to go to when the time comes. And here's one that is terribly dangerous. If they are depressed for, seems like, ever, and then out of nowhere, for no apparent reason, they are happy. Yes. Happy, happy, happy. Yes, that's right. Maybe that they have chosen time, place, and method. Yeah. And they know the pain is finite. And that, by the way, is the key, I believe. People, my friends call me when somebody, call me, Facebook, message me, text me, when somebody high profile dies by suicide, like Anthony Bourdain or Kate Spade. Yeah, that's right. And the question they always have is, why would somebody with that much to live for want to die? And my answer is generally, um, they didn't want to die. I didn't want to die. I'm in there. I didn't want to die. I um, I'll be out in about 15 minutes. That's all right. <laughs> yeah, welcome to the hotel, Russell. <laughs>
we've got to leave that in. I mean, that's a, that's a, that shows the exotic glitz and glamour of our lives, isn't it? Bam, bam, bam. How's get, out, get out of that room. I'm sure I'm sure eleven o'clock checkout time, and I don't think they'll send the cops. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so then um, the I tell them that that I didn't I didn't want to die. I just wanted to end the pain. Here's the metaphor I used. Uh, there's a Greek character named Sisyphus. Yeah. And his his sentence by the gods was to push a rock up a hill every day, and then when you got it near the top, it rolled back down to the bottom. And having a mental illness, and I think a lot of neuronormal, neurotypical people don't understand this. Having a mental illness is like being Sisyphus. Every morning when you wake up, there's a rock in a hill. Some days the rock is small, and the hill is not so steep. Some days the rock is a boulder, and the hill is Kilimanjaro. But if you have a mental illness, every day there's a rock in a hill, and your job is to move it up that hill. Mm. And Kate Spade, Anthony Bourdain, and I, I believe, all woke up one morning, and we simply could not move the rock. We were just tired of living. And you mentioned resilience. Uh, that's a, a big push over here, teaching resilience, mm. which I have mixed feelings about. I mean, I'm glad they are trying to do something. But I got to tell you, Russell, the people that I know who are the most resilient people I know are people who are mentally ill, especially those struggling with thoughts of suicide. So, um, you know, if you're neuronormal or neurotypical, perhaps teaching resilience in case you were, there was a situational depression and thoughts of suicide, but day in, day out, my mentally ill friends are the most resilient. Otherwise, they wouldn't get out of bed. Yeah. And paste on a smile and walk through the world like nothing is wrong. That's that, I mean, they're some of the most courageous and resilient and strong people I know. You see, I would argue that that's not resilience. I think that's something else. Um, but go on, carry on. So I'm interrupting you. Carry on. No, that's okay. That's, 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 and like I said, I have mixed feelings about that. Yeah. Interesting. So, I mean, we've, we've, um, we've, plumbed, we've plumbed the depths of comedy gold here and, um, so, so far. But can, yeah. we, can, we get on to, can we get on to the serious side of it now? <laughs> Which is, ah. Because in this country, there's a big debate running at the moment. And, and I'm part of this debate in a way because my mother died of one of those terrible, wasting... I think you call it ALS over there. We call it um, MSA or uh, motor neuron disease, where you know you get trapped inside of your body. You can you're unable to breathe and to swallow, to eat, and all that sort of stuff. And so we have this thing running at the moment about the the moral and the physical argument about assisted suicide or assisted death, as it's being nicely called. And there you have people who do think they're a burden do think obviously are literally socially isolated because they can't communicate and they have the willingness not to survive but they're not allowed to commit suicide nor is anybody else allowed to help them either so i wonder where you stand on that well uh one of the reasons we live in oregon is we have what they call right to die or death with dignity really yes there are, several states the US, there are people who moved to oregon simply for that reason because they are allowed with the aid of a physician yeah. and a psychiatrist i mean you have to be examined closely and carefully both yeah. uh, medically and mentally physically mentally and then uh, we have a friend whose husband um had cancer and kicked it and then it came back and kicked it and finally it was lung cancer i think and finally you know there was nothing else they could do and so he was allowed to pick his time, place, and method. He was allowed to, to go to the pharmacy and pick up the cocktail. And then surrounded by friends and family, he, they picked a day 
and he he took the he took he took the pills and he swallowed the pills himself and ended his life with dignity. He did not want to, you know, he he was ready to go. So that or there are states, Oregon, I believe, Washington, and maybe several others where now there's a huge debate over here about that. It's an interesting, um, isn't it? Because we, we talk about the right to uh, right of life, but we very rarely talk about the right of death. And it's a very, well, and I think it's actually la- wrapped into the the um, treating suicide as, as if it's a, as if it's a, as, how can I describe it? We treat suicide, people's suicidal thoughts as if they have to be treated with kid gloves, and therefore we're frightened to deal with people who perhaps want to actually die, and see it as some sort of moral religious problem. Um, a psychological problem, whereas actually taking your own life is quite, it's quite, it might not be, it might not be sensible, but it, it is our right, isn't it? You know, your, it was your right to blow the, your head off if you wanted to. Yeah, there is a debate uh, in mental health circles, um, and I'm thinking about doing a TED talk on it called Whose Life Is It Anyway? Yeah, exactly. Um, and 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 I've I, I what I find is people who've had a relative who has slowly died of a wasting disease like ALS or cancer, they have a much greater, much more open mind Correct. since they've seen it yeah. uh, in someone they cared deeply about. And um, yeah, I would, yeah, I would. I mean, I would if if I were terminal. Um, I would pick my time. I would be delighted. I would be glad I was living in Oregon where I could choose my time. Yeah. But then again, what, what, the, um, whose life is it anyway? It's, it's, could be somebody who is not necessarily at the end of life, but they've just, yeah. you know, they've I mean, had enough. I'll have the test for my, you know, the, my mother's condition. If I've got it, you know, I'll have 15 years left. And it's that thing, well, I wouldn't have the bravery that she had. So I'll pick my time. Yes, yeah. and, and, and the wife was telling me stop, stop talking like that. You know, it's uh, it's but you know, it's, it, it, I think we have the right to choose sometimes. Well, and, talk, and, and talking well, about places of living hell and death, tell me about Holland, Holland and America cruise ships. <laughs> yeah, we'll get to that in a second. Um, speaking of the uh, old Chief people, <laughs> yeah, the um, the thing is though, they've discovered, and I've seen several um, studies in states where. You have the right, you know, death with dignity or, or um, whatever, to end your own life. People tend to live longer yes. and better, kind of like my chronic suicidality. I stick around. I live longer and better because I know I have that option. Yeah. And they live longer and better knowing it's a matter of control. It was like this. Um, That's the key. That's what it's all about. Like, you're, like the sign to watch out for, someone's suddenly happy. Yeah, it is well, about control. And uh, they did a study on um, pain and like, morphine, and there was a push for a while not to give patients the ability to dose themselves if they were in the hospital in pain. Yeah, would give them a button. And what they found was they were worried they would overdose. And what they found was they actually used less because they didn't have to wait for somebody or try to get somebody's attention when they got into a great deal of pain. They tended to sort of stick it out longer between doses than they would have because normally they'd have to be, have to begin asking for it, you know, early to get it later because people are busy. But if they had control of it, they tended to use less and 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 live with the pain a little longer before they dose themselves. Yes. So again, it's all about control. 
Yeah, and I think that's that is what resilience is all about. It is all about control. Yeah. Um, you know, it's about making it's about making clean, conscious choices about how you live your life, and you know, not blaming everybody else and such like. So uh, yeah. So we've um, we've certainly, um, as I say, created comedy gold here to get today. Um, <laughs> so talk to me now. Come on, you were telling me because um, I just need to be respectful of your time. We're, we're not going to have time to talk about cruises this time, but I, you, um, if people want to get find you and get hold of you, how would they do that? And tell me about this new book you're writing. Uh, let's see. Well, I'm writing a book with uh, two women. It's, a, it's an anthology, 42 stories by men for men. Um, my co-author discovered that there was no, no real, there was no book at Barnes & Noble on men's mental health. Uh, and men tend to take advice from, uh, from men. Uh, men is most successful when it's men mentoring men. So, she, yeah, I, think, I think I think that's a really important thing because often the solutions propagated by women work for women, but not for men. All this talking about your feeling stuff doesn't, yes. doesn't work for men. It's not our solution. And that's what she did some studies, some surveys, uh, you know, unscientific surveys. But she talked to women and said, "What do you think men's problems are?" And the women listed problems, and she asked men what their problems were, and the, there were some similar items on each list, but different order. Yeah. Then she asked women what they thought that men would like to have in the way of help, and then asked men what they wanted in the way of help. And those two lists, they were completely different. Absolutely. So what we did was we gathered the stories of 40 men, um, alcoholism, bankruptcy, drug addiction, divorce. And in the first 500 words upstream, it's life's good. 500 words in the midstream, life goes bad. 500 words downstream, here's how I'm coping. And so we're hoping that men or women who have a man in their life will pick it up, read it. And there's all sorts of clinical advice and resources wrapped around the stories. But it's powerful in that men, these men were willing to share their darkest moments, which men don't tend to do. Yeah. And so that's, that's our way of, of hoping to, because eight out of 10 people who die in the U.S. are men age 45, 54. So uh, it's epidemic. And we're hoping to, to stem the tide and uh, in, in Australia, they have something called a shed project, which shed, I guess, in Australia is like a garage. Yeah. They found if you, uh, if you put two guys at Starbucks staring into each other's eyes, they're not going to share much of anything. But if you put them under the hood of the car where they can't see each other, they'll, they'll talk about just about anything. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, it's not even looking. It's just there has to be a TED. There has to be a project. There has to be a task involved. Right. Yes, that'd be doing something else. Yeah. That's just how men are. And so. Um, Anyway, we're trying to stem that. I'm going to write a book uh, called um, Start the Conversation on Suicide because that's what most of my clients want me to do. Is, is well, I'll tell, tell you what, Frank. Let's please come back uh, when the book's near a completion. Tell us all about it and let's sort of dip in and out of it a little bit and um, let's give the UK population a bit of a, a heads up on that. And hopefully we can spread the message in the UK as well. Yes, and we can talk about my um, appearance on a music video that was extremely popular in England. Yes, I think all three people you wanted saw that. Oh, nice shot. Bosh. Uh, you can, you can <laughs> everybody, everybody you meet fancies themselves as a, as a comedian, don't they? It's a terrible... They do, and that's fine. Uh, and speaking of which, you can reach me at TheMentalHealthComedian.com. TheMentalHealthComedian.com. That's it. And, and you're all over social media as well. And you've got some really great uh, videos as well on YouTube, I've seen. And, and, and uh, Russell, I must brag a bit. I've just, I've just booked yeah. my fifth TEDx talk. 
That is amazing. Congrats. It's a little lighter fare. It's called Mental Health and the Orgasm. Treat your depression single-handedly. Boom. Ching. Tra-ta-ta. I know. Frank, it's been a joy. Yes, it has. And, 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 and I'm hopefully, and I really do mean this, it's uh, until the next time rather than goodbye. So um, thank you so much for joining us today. And let's talk again when that book's ready. Yes, I will put you, I will be in touch as soon as the book gets published. Superb. Thanks ever so much. Thanks, Russell. Bye now. Bye. Hang on, Frank, don't go. <laughs> yes, I know. That's how this works. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Thanks so much. I mean, you don't need me to tell you you're a natural, so thank you for that. It's great. Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, and I think you'll find my co-authors, Sally and Sarah, uh, equally as conversational and, um, you know, um, good. It's just going to be good, solid, listenable uh, talk. Excellent. Well, I'll get Paula to, to do that. And I, and I really do mean that. And we'll hang on to this one and we'll, we'll link them two together. In fact, we might, I mean, sometimes we, we had a burnout month last month that was actually very popular. So we might have a suicide month. That would be very interesting. Oh, yeah, it would be interesting to record uh, some for that. Yeah, and then we might, you know, we bring a lot of resources together in, diff- in a one place. And, and obviously being a guy, it's actually quite nice to do something on men's mental health for a change, isn't it? Yes, it is. And again, it's epidemic over here. I'm sure it's epidemic there. Frank, you're a star. Thank you so much for your time. And I'm definitely going to leave that um, person knocking on the door as part of the book. Yeah, I would. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's live theater. Yay! <laughs> Take care. Thanks ever so much. See ya. Have a good night. Bye. Thanks for listening today. You can go to our site, qedod.com forward slash podcasts and subscribe to hear other titles in our series. Or you can contact us at info at qedod.com to hear and find out more about tough love, leadership, accountability, resilience and burnout. You can go to our site, qedod.com forward slash burnout 2019 to hear and get access to a load of resources to help you manage and fight burnout. And you can go to qedod.com forward slash free ebook to hear more about the fundamentals of resilience. Until the next episode, keep on thriving.